hola, hola, amigos, amigos, players, playwrights, do-do-dats, everybody in between. It is I, Morgan Wright, your host with the most of the show of the podcast, Game of Crimes, here literally with my partner in crime. Steve Murphy, but you know me as Murph. Yeah, you also know him as Boyd Holbrook on the wildly successful... Uh, Woohoo, Narcos. Hey, by the way, Boyd's coming out. I saw him. You you told me about this before. I think a lot of people knew, but I just saw the preview for the next Indiana Jones movie, and guess whose shiny face is in there? Oh, yeah. They 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 uh, <clears throat> played an ad during the Super Bowl, and uh, yep. you can see Boyd standing right behind... Um, Indiana Jones. There you go. Harrison Ford. That's the man. I can't believe he's still doing that, but he is. Good for him. Yeah, well, if you see him on uh, 1923, the uh, Yellowstone, you know, prequel, prequel. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Look a little rough. He's not Indiana Jones anymore. <laughs> he's more like Metamucil Jones. Oh. He's going really slow. Yep, that's our boy Boyd. He's moving right on up. That's right, man. You still got to work. Get him on. Get him on. I'm All trying. right, guys, hey. You're trying. I know you're trying. Hey, guys, just some quick housekeeping because that's what the script says. Quick, uh, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. It really helps us a lot. Really, it does. Um, And we'd like to announce, too, this will be something you will see us doing, and we will start probably in the following episode. We have a new hosting platform called Audioboom. We're very excited to get started with them, and we've got some ads that Murph and I will actually be doing reading them live into the show. So it's going to be an interesting uh, new take, and we're going to have some fun. Oh, our first advertiser, once you hear our ad, we're going to have some fun with that one. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We got a couple others, too. Some others are coming in. So, hey, guys, but, yeah, seriously, help us with that. It really helps us out. Uh, Murph that can't afford to eat cat food, and he's got to pay for that pool and hot tub out back. That's right. I got a grand. I got a six-year-old out there right now. Yeah, and you know, I just I just need a fancy place to retire to. You know, not 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 anything fancy. I mean, well, yeah, fancy. Just you know, fifty acres. You know, um, long driveway, private jet. You know, I'm just you know, helicopter. Hey, if you're asking for the moon, go for it. Go for it. All right, but we can't get there unless you help us with those five stars. Also, head on over to our website 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 gameofcrimespodcast.com. That's where we'll have some cool pictures, our book list. We've got some guests coming up. One has got three books. He's written three novels. That'll be coming out here in a couple episodes. Uh, But just head on over there, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Everything you need to know about the show is there. Also, follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. But we've been having a lot of fun on Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We just did a funny, you can't make this shit up. I mean, this was, I was, I tell you, I, the only time I laughed harder is in this next episode coming up with Ke- with Kevin Black. Kevin's so, funny. Uh, his story, I'm not going to give it away. Just let's say there is a uh, there is a theme to a couple of his stories. You'll just have to listen to him at the very end. <laughs> the, I have not laughed so hard on a podcast episode as we did there, but that's what. But we got a lot of good stuff coming up too, like that. We've got our case of the month. Uh, by the time this comes out. Our case of the month will be coming out, and we decided to do a follow-up with our buddy Rob Zaharashevitz, or Zaharashevsky, or something. We call him Zach. Zach. Nobody can pronounce his name. Robbie Z. Um, We did an update on the Victor Boot, Brittany Griner case, and the swap, and uh, some of Rob's thoughts about that. So that that will be our case of the month on Patreon for this month. We did his episode. You hear that on the free side, but if you want to hear what Rob says in the follow-up, hit us on over to patreon.com slash game of crimes. Also remember folks, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but we never take ourselves serious and we don't want you to take us too seriously either. Or don't, don't take yourself too seriously. Life's too short. Take us seriously when we say go to Game of Crimes uh, podcast or patreon.com slash Game of Crimes and sign up. 
and give us five stars. Take us serious about that. Everything else, um, you know, take, you know, just whatever you feel like. But life hey, is good. Life is good. Hey, and if you know that we don't take our tales too seriously, head on over to the Facebook fan page. Game of Crimes fans run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Just uh, answer a few questions. Just get close, guys. If you're deemed worthy, you should be able, you will be allowed access into the inner sanctum mm-hmm. where we have lots of good stuff. In fact, uh, I posted a real good, if you guys see, we're, we do sophisticated humor here. We're not like fancy comedians, but we did a whole thing uh, where our uh, Murphs, we actually were talking about the real housewives of DA Narcos and Connie came on and Connie admitted she had been in bed with Pedro Pascal. Yes, he did. I've got photographic evidence. And then this Christmas, what did I find? Or for Valentine's Day, I found a picture of a candle that says, smells like Pedro Pascal, and Murph showed it to Connie. She says, you got to get me that. (laughs) That was hilarious. (laughs) So do that. You know, there's a lot of people out there that love Pedro so much, they'd love to have that candle. Folks, it doesn't really smell like Pedro Pascal because you know how you know? No, how do you, you buy the candle. How do you know what he smells like? That's right. You take you some marketing firm's word for it. There you go. <laughs> hey, now, we've had a couple folks. They say they want us to bring back small town police blotter. We're going to do that with a little bit of a twist. But, hey, Murph, I thought we would have fun and throw a couple things into it. But I think, you know, let's just give folks a taste of what we were doing there. So I just have to ask you, do you know what time it is? Do you know what time it is? Let me ask you one more time. Do you know what time it is? What time is it? It is time for... Small, Small Town Police Blotter. There we go. Hey, we'll cue the music, all that good stuff. I almost missed the cue. <laughs> almost missed the cue. Hey, I got a couple stories. And then I have something. You remember on our um, Patreon episode on You Can't Make This Shit Up? I did like weird laws. So I've decided, hey, we're going to pick out states and locations and find some weird laws. And I got I got one from Wisconsin today. But starting, this one comes from Mariposa, California, population 1,526. Salute. The crimes. This, this was just in a recent uh, uh, police blotter there. Here's the bullet points of the crimes that happened. A trailer mysteriously appeared at the North Glen Mobile Home Park during the night. Whoa! It's probably there was a, on one of those Chinese balloons. Dropped it right, dropped right in the middle of it. I'd look to see who's hiding inside there. There was a suspicious suspect talking to himself in the 7700 block of Forest Drive. <laughs> of course, there. <laughs> you Did make he come out of the trailer? Yeah, I don't, he probably came out of the trailer. How do you know he just didn't have earbuds in or something? Maybe he's talking to somebody on the phone. Hey, speaking of that, a strange man came out of a private bar in Greeley Hill saying the wolves were after him. Oh, how much did have? What was he drinking? Uh, probably meth was involved in that oh, one. It's California, go. remember? And yeah. what do we say? Don't, Don't do, do meth. meth, kids. A man in the 10,300 block of Usona Way needed help picking up his wife from the floor. Whoa. I, I don't want to touch that. <laughs> uh, oh, and, uh, speaking of uh, big things running loose, a red Angus was loose on Hornitos Road. That's a name, Hornitos Road. An inmate at the jail hit his head when he got out of bed and was transported to Fremont Hospital. Who cares? And a man complained that his girlfriend was crazy because she was talking to the TV. Man, I talk to the TV every time the news is on. <laughs> when college football is on, I talk to the TV all the time, man. Hey, somebody's got to get that interception and that fumble going. That's right. Hey, now, Steve, this one, though, too. Follow-up. This comes from Rhode Island. I included Rhode Island. Rhode Island is about as big as a postage stamp, you know, compared to the rest of the United States. So I figure, hey, it qualifies. Small jail there, Steve. Uh-huh. Guy had a 90-day sentence for disorderly conduct. So what does this brilliant rocket scientist do? He spends 88 days coming up with the scheme to escape from jail. 
escapes from jail on the 89th day, made his escape, only to be caught a couple months later and sent back to prison for one and a half years. What a moron. (laughs) Some of you criminals out there, you, you just need a new line of work. All right, now, Steve, get ready for Weird Law of the Week, said in a reverb tone. In Wisconsin, Section 97.18, parenthesis 4, renders it illegal for a restaurant to serve margarine as a butter substitute unless specifically requested. According to the law, the serving of colored oleo margarine or margarine at a public eating place as a substitute for table butter is prohibited unless it is ordered by the customer. Wow. You know what what else is illegal, Steve? You'll like this next one. Section 97.18 parenthesis five prohibit servers from providing margarine to school children prisoners and hospital patients unless a doctor has ordered otherwise jeez where is this in wisconsin wisconsin the serving of oleo margarine or margarine to students patients or inmates of any state institution as a substitute for table butter is prohibited except that such substitution may be ordered by the institution's superintendent when necessary for the health of a specific patient or inmate if directed by the physician in charge of the patient or inmate. And Steve, if you violate this law, those commit first offenses, risk being fined between $100 and $500 and in prison for up to 90 days. Hey, don't do what the other idiot did. Second offenses and beyond can be $500 to $1,000 and up to a year in jail. Holy cow. What, what brought that on? The oleo, the butter wars and the margarine wars, buff, from 1967, I think, to 1980. There's a huge war going on. And Wisconsin said, this far but no farther. We're taking a stand. That's it. Not this line, you go no further. That's crazy. Well, I mean, I know they're known for cheese, but I didn't know they were known for yeah. butter. Well, it's all kind of, you know, some of the same product. You just do a little bit more, you get cheese. You do it a different way, you get butter. Hey, you know what? We're going to see some friends of ours from Wisconsin this coming week. I'll have to ask them about this. I'm sure they know all about it. Ask them when they went to a restaurant if they violated the law by ordering margarine. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, I just thought we'd throw that out there. You guys have a little fun. So that tees this up because this next one, uh, this next guy... He should be from Wisconsin. He's kind of a cheesehead, but he's he's a funny guy. He's got an accent between him and Murph. Uh, I spent a lot of time editing this episode because I had no idea what they were saying half the time. Uh, but and I had to get you a country translator. No, and what you had to do is get me a translator. And I make a mistake right at the beginning of this. I introduce him as Kevin Jackson instead of Kevin Black because... I had just been talking with one of the guys that I do. I do some consulting and advisory work. One of the top sales guys' name is Kevin Jackson, and that that's where it was from. Anyway, we. Well, Kevin, we got, I mean, everybody knows Kevin was Michael's brother. That's right, man. When you see him, when you hear him talk, there's there's there, you can't tell the difference. <laughs> Except he can't sing and he can't dance. Can't dance. <laughs> Can't say, hey, but Steve, but you you came across this guy because not only did you come across this guy, this isn't a guy you just met at a conference. This is the guy you actually used to work with. It is. It's uh, Kevin and I met when I when I came out of Columbia in 1994. I was my first post in the U.S. was Greensboro, North Carolina. Had no idea where it was. Turned out to be one of the most beautiful places I've ever lived. Um, but we only had five agents to cover 26 counties, and we didn't have a task force. So you had to go out and you know make good connections with all the state and locals in the areas that you were responsible for covering. And that's how I first met Kevin. He was brand new into one of the agencies there. And and it's just turned in, as as is true with most law enforcement connections, it turns into a lifetime friendship. And so Kevin, is uh, he's done very well for himself. I think he's a major now. Uh, he's the past, twice, he was the past president of North Carolina Narcotics Officer Association. He just got selected as the, is it secretary or treasurer? 
for the National Narcotics Association Coalition, which is the entire United States. So you, this boy, he's, he's not a, you know, he's funny. He will make you laugh. He will break your neck. He'll break your leg if you piss him off. He's a big and a, boy. Absolutely. And one of the stories will break your heart, too, when he talks about uh, his shift part. Oh, and, and that's what I love about it. So you know, here you got, this is a true tough guy. We didn't get into his, too much to his deployments uh, over in the sandbox. He was working as a contractor. We did mention it, but uh, that's tough duty. And this boy, this is a tough guy. If you've ever met a tough guy, just wait till you hear this story. I had tears in my eyes when he's telling us about it. Well, and he's got a unique start to life, too, that we want to talk about. And we'll talk about it in there, but we're going to save the rest of it for the episode because it's funny and it's heartbreaking. Uh, he's lost. He lost a friend in the line of duty. You know, like I said, he, he saw he, his first officer involved shooting, uh, you know, how he responded to that and a personal thing that he's going to tell you about. But Murph, there's only one way we're going to hear about it. And that's if I ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous Game of all, the game of crimes. And I'm going to warn you right now, get you some tissues out. And after you get those, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Here we go with Kevin. Gang, players out there, this is going to be a tough episode. If you can understand what both Murph and our next guest are saying, you're you're ahead of the game, man. We're going to need an interpreter for you boys from the South. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin Jackson. Kevin Black. Oh, what did I say, Kevin Jackson? <laughs> Jesus. That's my cousin. <laughs> oh, God. Now who's having a hard time here? Oh, my Look, it has been a long night and a long day. Murph and I got done recording. You guys don't know when we're doing this, but we we went till like 8 or 8.30 last night. I got up early this morning doing a bunch of stuff. Kevin was supposed to record with us last week uh, while he was down in D.C., but we had some technical issues because he was at a hotel. So we're doing it. This, so, yeah, like I'm, I'm tired. Where did they come up with Jackson? <laughs> well, it can only I, go uphill from here, right? Are you going to moonwalk for us, Kevin? I mean, I can try if you want to see it. Well, or you could have just said Alan Jackson, then he could sing for us. There Way you down go. yonder on the Chattahoochee, it gets hotter <laughs> than a hoochie coochie. All right. <laughs> oh, Lord, here we go. <laughs> hey, well, let's get this thing started, Kevin, because uh, the reason we're here is, uh, Murph, you know, just set the stage real quick. How did you come across Kevin? Because uh, you've known him for longer than a couple minutes. Yeah, we have. When uh, when I transferred with DEA out of Columbia back to the United States, I was stationed in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I'll be honest with you, I, never, I had no idea where Greensboro was. I had to go look it up on a map. Uh, turns out to be one of the best places you can live. It was beautiful. North Carolina's a great state. And we only had five agents to cover the whole middle district of North Carolina, which was, I think it was 26 counties. So obviously you can't do a whole lot like that. And you've got to partner up with your state and local partners. And, and that was the cool thing. My partner at DEA at the time was Charlie Graham. Uh, you remember Charlie, Kevin? And uh, Charlie made me some introductions to the state and local partners. And then eventually I got assigned to the counties south of Greensboro, uh, which included Rowan, uh, the Concord, Kannapolis area, Salisbury particularly, Davison County, which is where Lexington is. And, and uh, somewhere along the line here, Kevin and I ran across each other, got to be friends back then. It's as is typical with the law, enforce law enforcement culture. Once you make that friendship, it's a lifelong friendship. It doesn't matter that you retire. It doesn't matter that you move. Uh, I left uh, Greensboro in 1998, went to Atlanta, and here we are in 2023, and Kevin and I are still talking to each other regularly. 
So I think you, I got the name wrong because you got old Murph and you told me his name was Kevin Jackson. I think that's what it was. So. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> well, hey, Kevin, man, welcome to the show. As we do with all of our guests, it's our Cosa Nostra segment, Thing of Ours. How did you get started in this thing of ours? I mean, were you drunk one night outside a bar and somebody tossed you on the front you know, steps of a police station? How did this happen? Now, that's very possible. I know Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never met a beer I didn't like. Um, I guess, you know, it's kind of twofold. And I'm going to regret part of this uh, because of you, Morgan. But so the, the first part would have been my father uh, that adopted me and raised me. He uh, he was born during the Great Depression. So I had a pretty stern upbringing, but I had a loving family. And my dad was constantly watching, you know, John Wayne uh, Army movies, stuff like that. And it, so it kind of piqued my interest at an early age. Uh and he also told me after one of my high school jobs that I wasn't cut out for, for manual labor. And the second part, and I'm going to regret saying this, is my neighbor was a state trooper. And what? what do you mean you regret saying this? Oh, no. Here I'm we not, go. Not the a law enforcement professional inspired by a state trooper, Murph. <laughs> Absolutely. He would, uh, he would actually we, – we went to church with um, him and his family, and, uh, and Wayne actually would you – know, he, he would pick me up sometimes and take me uh, and let me ride with him, and, and it kind of – that kind of piqued my interest. And like I said, uh, you know, my father telling me I wasn't cut out for manual labor. I, I figured I better do something. Um, what? And, yeah, yeah, we got to hear that story. Yeah, we got, okay, <laughs> rewind. You don't get to go past that. What were the conditions in your youth that said you weren't cut out for manual labor? Well, in between uh, football and track season one year, um, I took a job uh, in a uh, in High Point, actually, High Point, North Carolina, at a factory a textile factory that made um like women's shoulder pads and stuff like that and it would i guess it would have been my senior year in high school and um i was you know one of the guys that packed the bags full of um full of um sh women's shoulder pads or bra pads or whatever whatever it was that was on the machine that day and uh, i'd got mad earlier in the day because uh um Christmas was coming up and our foreman told us, he said, you know, we get Christmas day, Christmas Eve, Christmas day. Then you're expected to work. He said, I know you high school guys are out of school for like two weeks. And he said, you know, y'all are kind of expected to be here. And I'm like, this is my senior year in high school. I'm going in the military when I, you know, when I graduate, I don't have time for this shit. So I was kind of, kind of butthurt about that. And I'm on the line and I'm packing shoulder pads and there was this little machine that would come down and tie the shoulder pads to compress them. So you could put them in a bag and it, caught me in top of the hand it pinned my hand down so as i'm pulling this arm i guess is what it was off from me the foreman comes by and says you need to quit dragging ass and get these shoulder pads packed and i said so i sat there for a minute and i'm like well this is bullshit so i walked by and i'm like peace out i hit the door and i went home my dad uh, looked at his watch when i came in and he said why, why are you not at work and i so i told my dad the story and he sat there and shook his head, and, and uh, he just looked at me, and he said, son, he said, I'm going to give you a piece of advice, and you need to follow it. And I said, what's that, Dad? And he said, you need to go to college and get an education because you're not cut out for manual labor. And that's all he said, and he went back to watching television. I went down to my room, and I'm like, I guess he's right. <laughs> well, hey, let, let's explore just a little bit, though. Uh, Murph, you were getting ready to say something. Go ahead. Uh, how old were you when you were adopted, Kevin? So I was adopted at uh, – I was five months old. Oh, Wow. And, uh, and, and as I like to tell my adoptive mother and now my um, 
biological mother, you know, it was pretty rough. It was pretty rough growing up with the nuns. I mean, they'd make you get up early and sweep and mop and, you know, things like that. So it was kind of rough living those first few months. Those five months. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're teaching a five month old to hold a mop. That's pretty tough. I mean, you know, it was pretty impressive, but it was hard work. (laughs) <laughs> well, you, you mentioned something interesting. You said your adoptive mom and biological mom. Does that also include your adoptive father and biological father? It absolutely does. My my adoptive father's passed away. He was, uh, like I said, he was born during the Great Depression. He was a Korean War era veteran. So, so dad passed away probably 20, gosh, I guess about 23 years ago now. And how did you find, how did it come about that you met your biological parents? Uh, so... Uh, well, before, my, before you, real quick, Jake, Kevin, before you say how, let, let me go, let's, let's preface Murph's question with why, why did you go looking for him? And then how did you find him? So my, uh, my mother, um, which, you know, being down South, I call her mama, um, which would be if I, cause I, I, sometimes I tend to get the two confused or, well, people get confused with what I say. So my mama that raised me, um, she had told me, I guess I knew, I don't ever remember not knowing that I was adopted uh, to the point that they would get calls from school uh, when I started elementary school and, and even preschool where kids would, because to, to me it was normal. So I would, uh, I would talk about it and uh, other kids, you know, you know, kids being kids, they, you know, I would, I would get picked on and uh, I got in trouble numerous times because I could convince other kids that their parents didn't really want them. And mine chose me. So then they would cry and I would get in trouble and they would call my parents. But um, now, now, and I guess just to interrupt you for a sec, Kevin, just remember that thought as we go through this interview, because you're going to see, you remember when I put in our notes, he's got a lot of funny stories. This yeah. is what, this is the beginning of it right here. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so like I said, I, I never, I never not did not know that I was adopted. And, uh, my mother and our mom and I would talk about it a lot of times, you know, and, and, uh, she always told me from a young age that she would support, um, if I ever wanted to try and find my biological parents, you know, she would be a hundred percent supportive. And I thought about it on and off through the years. And, um, I mean, I had a great childhood growing up. I wouldn't change any of it for anything. Um, Hey, so- Kevin, I know you kind of alluded to it, but do you recall going back? When was the first time you remember? What you not just that you were adopted, but you understood what adopted mean. I mean, were you like in second grade, third grade? How early are we talking about? You know, I don't, I don't know that I never, I don't ever recall not having an understanding of what it meant. Um, my, like I said, my mother and father that raised me, uh, I just really, don't, I don't have any recollection of not knowing what adoption was. Um, I was, I was constantly, you know. Um, told that I was, you know, special. They tried to have kids. They couldn't, uh, you know, they, they really, um, it, like I said, I, I don't ever, I don't ever remember not knowing. So then you're fast forwarding now you were talking about, so they always supported you and said, if you ever wanted to go look, so you thought about it for years. What, what was the trigger that finally said, Hey, I want to do this. So when my dad, my dad died, uh, he had some health issues and, and it kind of sparked my interest in, and I set it off on the back burner. Didn't really think a lot about it. And the, uh, my wife at the time, um, I was probably about 44 years old and, uh, she bought, we talked about it at length and she bought me a ancestry DNA kit for Christmas and me being the typical male. I didn't read, I didn't read the directions. Um, I just, you know, went in, tore the box apart and, and did it. And I think the first one came back that I was 
part cheeseburger and something else because you're not supposed to eat before you take them. <laughs> so they send me another one in the mail and, uh, and I took it and, uh, I actually read, oh, wait a minute. Did you follow the I directions, the directions that time? And I took it and, um, it, uh, came back and, you know, did, you know, allowed me to set up a profile. Um, and of course I made it public. So that would have been, I guess, December, January timeframe. So fast forward to July, she was in a, um, a, um, F, Who's she? Uh, my wife, she was an FBI Alita school at the time down in, I think it was Tampa, Florida or, or female leadership course or something. But I'd periodically checked over the you know, few months to see if anything would link. And I never really got anything. And she, uh, I came home that day and I was going to let the dogs out and I was going to, uh, I was going to jujitsu class that evening. I thought, you know, while the dogs are out, I'm just going to check real quick and see, you know, see what's on here. So I had a link with a person named Larry Haynes and it showed Larry and I as being uh, first cousins, but Larry's age, he was roughly, I think Larry was 68, 69 at the time. And, uh, he had sent me a message and it said, ancestry DNA is showing us to be first cousins. Uh, do you have any idea how we're related? And I told Larry at that time, I said, I, I don't, I said, I was adopted in 1974. And that was part of the reason that I'm on here is to, um, you know, see if I can find somebody that I'm, you know, related to and then kind of track things back. And, uh, so, you know, we just kind of chatted back and forth, exchanged phone numbers. So I immediately, like, I guess everybody does today, I went to Facebook and of course I find Larry and I see, um, uh, a blonde headed girl, the younger blonde headed girl is one of his Facebook friends. Her middle name was Haynes, but she had a different last name because obviously she's married and I, I remember thinking to myself, I said, she, she looks like me or I look like her. Um, uh, so I called my mother on the phone and I said, you're not going to believe this shit. I said, you need to, well, I didn't say shit to mama, but I said, you're not going to believe this. I said, you need to, you need to go on Facebook and look at this. So I've got her on speakerphone. She's, you know, she's beating around on the computer and she's like, uh, yeah, I can, I can definitely, I can definitely see the resemblance. She's like, what do you think? I said, well, you know, I don't, I don't really have anything to go on now. You know, them, I'm just kind of in the you know, the infancy of the whole thing. So the following day, uh, like I said, Larry and I had texted back and forth. Um, of course I'd done my due diligence to make sure he wasn't a, you know, a criminal or anything. And we'd actually just got done doing a heroin deal in the parking lot of Walmart, which is, you know, the popular spot to sell dope in, in the South. And we had, uh, I'd gone back to my office next to a, next to a yes, waffle house. Yes, right? Absolutely. So I go back to, uh, I go back to my office and it's patrol shift change. And so, you know, you got people milling up and down the hallways at the agency and, you know, people are stopping in to BS and, and whatnot. So I had an office full of people and my uncle Larry or what I later found to be my uncle Larry sends me a text message. And he said, uh, what is your, what's your date of birth? And I'm like, I'm not giving you my date of birth. That's how, you know, some Chinese person ends up being named Kevin Black. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do that. He's probably got seventeen million dollars. He wanted to give you. Yeah, <laughs> I just I just told him I said March March seventy four is all I said, and he immediately responds back with my date of birth, the the, the day, and uh, so that was kind of weird. So I called him, and like I said, there's people in the now now, Kevin, hold on here for a second. Uh, you know, you, you're a cop at this time, right? Yes. 
and I know you said you didn't you didn't you didn't want to give him all of your information because you you know you didn't want some Chinese guy to be named Kevin Black. But were any red flags going off at this time? Did you think that this was some because you're working dope, you're working cases? You know, did you did, did anything trigger at this time with a red flag thinking, hey, this is a this is an operation to target me or screw with me, or did you know, or did you really believe that this is what was going on because of the pictures and everything? All I'm trying to say is that sometimes there's you know against all common sense, you think, oh no, this this can't be right. And then that's how some of these big scams happen. So were, were there any huge flags going off or is this more just kind of a the nagging only thing reason, in the back And I mind? probably put too much faith in corporate America, but the only reason that I didn't think that it was a scam was because of the DNA link through Ancestry. I thought, you know, it's, in my opinion, it's, it's a reputable site. Um, there's, you know, there, there's probably, I've never heard of anything, you know, any scams coming out of Ancestry. So I was like, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt because this is the closest that I've ever been. Uh, one of my best friends I actually grew up with, his dad was our high school football coach. He had sent that summer, he had sent me a picture of a guy that he saw at Myrtle Beach. And he's like, this has got to be your dad. He looks just like you. He's built like you. And he had taken, it's the one who didn't go to jail because he was stalking the guy around the beach, taking pictures of him so he could send to me. <laughs> and there was, there was some resemblance. I mean, he obviously wasn't as good looking, but you know, there was some resemblance. Couldn't be. Yeah. Well, apparently you didn't inherit the modesty gene, so. I, I took it off a while back. <laughs> you can deactivate that one. Yeah. So, so yeah, but so continue on. So you, you've got this going. He comes back because that's got to be a weird feeling. Like he knows your date of birth and it's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He, he knows my date of birth. And that's when, that's when I had, you know, just a weird feeling in the pit of my stomach. So. I got out, went down the hall, went into a private office where one of the APHIS machines is at so I could have a little bit of privacy. Okay, and, uh, and uh, we have a rule here. You can't – because you used FBI, Lita, and then we talked about APHIS. So you got to define acronym. So let's go real quick back to the thing, the first, the training your wife went to. What was that? Uh, the I, I'm not sure what the acronym is because it's the FBI, and I try to I try to avoid them at all costs. But um, it's a, it's a leadership development course. Okay. And uh, I, I think this one specifically, if I remember correctly, was geared toward um, – Women? Uh, women in law enforcement management uh, that she was taking. And then tell people what APHIS is. Oh, it's some magic and acronym that has something to do with fingerprints. I, I'm just a dumb detective. I don't, that's out of my wheelhouse. Yeah, automated fingerprint identification. I, I'll take your word for yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll help you with the acronyms. Okay. You just let it Thank do the magic much. in the background. So you go into the safest office, you're playing with fingerprints, and then what happens next? So uh, I, call, I call Larry on the phone and uh, I said, How did you know my date of birth? And he got real quiet and his voice cracked. And he said, uh, he said, um, I'm not your first cousin. Um, I'm your uncle. So when he says that immediately, I'm thinking, okay, well, it's got to be on my mother or father's side. Cause there's no other, you know, no other option there. And I said, I said, really? And he said, yes. He said, your dad is my, is my brother. And, uh, I said, wow. You know, I mean, is, is, is he still alive? And he said, yes, he's still alive. And he said, uh, he said, I'm standing here in the living room with your dad and your mother now. So that kind of, that was like a punch in the gut. Um, I got kind of quiet because I was, you know, just taking it all in. And uh, I said, I said, are you sure? I said, you better not be fucking with me. And uh, he's like, no, no. He said, I'm, I'm being, I'm being serious. And I said, well, where, where are you at? Can, is there, can, can I come over? And he said, well, you know, we were, we were hoping that's what you would, that's what you would say. And he said, yes. He said, I'm, I'm going to give you the address. 
So I just, I come in, um, how far away, where was it? How far away was it from where you were at? So it's actually in the County that I work in. So it was, uh, maybe 25 minutes Wait away. Wait a minute. All of these years, your, your mother and father lived in the same County as you? No, they live the, the next County over. I live in Davidson County and, uh, but work still, in Rowan. Yeah. But how, how, how many people in those counties? Oh, I think both of them are probably 150 plus, 150,000 plus in each county. All right. But still, but you're, you're within an hour's drive of your mom and dad, right? Your biological oh, yeah. mom yeah. and dad. All Absolutely. of these years. All these years. Were you with Rowan or Davidson County at that time? Rowan. Yeah. I, I, and you know, growing up, I didn't know where Salisbury was because I grew up in Thomasville. So we went to High Point Winston or Greensboro. You know, never anywhere, you know, really south there. I'd been to Charlotte, you know, growing up for stuff, but it just wasn't, it just wasn't somewhere I would have been. You get the call, you decide, you, do you take the drive? So I get the call, um, and, 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 uh, Steve will, Steve will remember this or remember him. So Sam Gregory was in the office with him. Uh, he retired from the SBI and, uh, and came to work for us at the sheriff's office. And Sam kind of knew, uh, you know, about, about the whole thing of, of Larry contact. I mean, I looked at Sam. I said, I, I got to go. I'll talk to you later. And he could tell something was wrong. So I leave. And uh, the first person I called um, was I called my wife. And I said, you're not going to believe this. Ancestry's hit, which I told her the night before about the, the link. And I told her what had happened. And she, I mean, you know, she, she's over the moon, excited. I hang up the phone with her. I call my mother. And uh, I tell her, and she was, it kind of bothered me because mom had been excited up to that point. And then when reality kicks, you know, sets in, she was just kind of, you know, didn't really have a lot to say. And I said, well, you know, do you, do you want to go with me? And she said, no, I think this is something, you, you know, you probably need to do on your own first. So I called my daughter next and I told her and uh, she uh, asked her if she wanted to go. And she's like, no, dad, I, I'm kind of like, uh, they call my mother Nene. She said, I'm kind of like Nene. I, I think it's something you need, you need to do first. Do you think your mama, real quick, do you think your mama was, do you, what was, what do you think she was scared of at that point that she's raised you all these years and that you might turn your affection or attention to the other set of parents? Oh, that was absolutely it. Cause she, she later told me that she, you know, she just didn't, she just wasn't ready to share me with, with anyone. And I'm, you know, I'm 44 years old at that time. And, um, so I called my son next and I told him and, uh, he's, he's got a, he's a smart ass like I am. And he said, well, give me the address that you're going to be at. And I said, well, are, are you coming over? And he said, no, I'm not coming over. He said, but if this is a scam or something, they kidnap you. We'll know where to start looking. So smart kid. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess he, I yeah. guess he really is. I'm not a smart kid, but a smart ass. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's like uh, one of the most eventful moments in your life. And your guy, he's like, oh, if you get kidnapped, we know where to start. Yeah, that's what he said. He said, if they kidnap you or something, we'll know where to start looking for you. So I like it. So I go home. And in the meantime, uh, Larry calls me back. And I, you know, I told him, I said, I've got to let the dogs out. You know, switch cars and I'll come down. So, uh, so I drive over and of course I haven't met Larry yet. I just saw him through Facebook, but I recognize him standing in the driveway and, uh, there's a dark haired lady with him who I found out later was my, my aunt. It was his wife. And as soon as he sees me, he runs up and grabs me and hugs me. And oh, as soon as he lets go, uh, aunt Lynn does the same thing. Well, I see two people 
in the doorway of the house that I'm at, uh, look, I see a, a, a blonde headed lady looking out the window or looking out the door. And as we walk in, um, uh, it, um, I immediately, it's, it's hard, it's hard to describe. Uh, that was actually my mother. Um, and there was an immediate connection there that I can't, I can't really explain. Um, but I knew, I knew who she was. And, um, of course she grabs me and hugs me. And then I see my father. And, uh, if you ever see a picture of us, I mean, there's no, there's absolutely no, no denying it whatsoever. And, you know, we just all kind of stood there and cried for a minute. And, um, we, we sat down on the couch and, and, um, my mother says they've got a computer there and they've got some of my pictures on Facebook pulled up. And, uh, I said, what's, what's this? And she said, well, she said, your, your aunt and uncle, um, you know, they, they came over here and showed us these pictures after Larry had, um, had, uh, connected with you through, through ancestry. And so they were looking at pictures of me and, and, um, of course I look like my brother and sister and obviously my father. So we kind of sat down, the motions kind of settled a little bit. And, um, the first question I had for them was, do I have a, do I, you know, do I have any siblings? Cause I had assumed at this point, you know, there would have been more likely than not, they were not together. There would be half brothers, half sisters. Um, you know, so I was kind of, I was kind of, you know, ready for all that. And, uh, they said, yes, you have a, you have a brother and sister both. And I said, I have a brother and sister both with you two. And they're like, yeah. So then they go into the story about what happened. And, um, say Kevin, how long had you been in law enforcement at this time? Oh God, let's see. That was four years ago. Uh, about 23, 24 years. And you've been through a lot of stuff. You've seen a lot of stuff. You've, you know, we're going to talk about some of these stories, but you've been involved in a lot of, you know, dangerous situations, you know, a lot of stuff like that, right? Yes, sir. How prepared were you for this situation? None whatsoever. I couldn't have been more, I couldn't have been prepared for this. I I did nothing. I mean, I was a complete mess um, emotionally. And I was trying to, you know, I was trying to be strong because they were obviously just, you know, extremely, extremely upset. And when, you know, you hear the rest of it, you'll kind of, you know, kind of understand why, but it, yeah, there was nothing that could have prepared me for it. All these years of knowing and it not really being a big deal to me. Um, when I come face to face with my parents after 44 years, it was just, I, I can't describe the emotion. So I, you've tell got, you what, I got a lump in my throat just listening to yeah. you here. Well, it's just, it's compelling. Look, we just got through doing an interview with uh, somebody Steve met, um, Regina Patterson King from uh, DEA, and to hear her story growing up. I mean, some of these stories we're hearing now about if people knew what you went through, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, just amazing. But obviously in the back of your head, I mean, you, now you know the what, do I have a brother and sister? Then now you're kind of getting into the why. So why did they put you up for adoption? So a quick segue on uh, on finding them. Um, in North Carolina, I don't know how it is in other states, when the adoption is done through social services, those records are sealed. They recently passed a law a few years back where you can you can uh, you can uh, file a motion and they'll release any medical history that they have, but everything else is sealed in uh, vital records down in Raleigh. So, had a real good friend of mine. He just uh, he just recently retired uh, back in December. His name was Mark Class, and Mark was a uh, Superior Court judge, lifelong friend of mine, and uh, I'd spoken to him about seeing if I could get a Superior Court judge's order to unseal those records. 
And he was actually researching what needed to be done when that whole ancestry thing hit. So anyway, my, uh, uh, my mother did most of the talking. My dad was, uh, he's a big hearted guy and was just very, very emotional. Um, so my mother was an orphan. Um, she was, uh, in an or in and out of orphanages in Lexington as a child. Um, so I guess at that time of the world in the world, they, uh, 19, 1974, once the orphans got a certain age, they moved them from Davidson County to Rowan County. And there was a working farm there. So, um, I think it's Nat Nazareth's home for children, some, some shit like that's the name of it. But anyway, so she was actually living on that farm, um, and going to uh, East Rowan High School when she met my father. So she was, I think, let me get the ages right. I think she was 16. He was 18 at the time. She gets pregnant with me. The two of them are not together. Uh, she was terrified that, you know, number one, she couldn't raise a she couldn't raise a child at 16 years old. I mean, she had no family support system. She's you know, living in an orphanage. Uh, and my father, you know, he, he was, like I said, the two of them were not together. So... She was afraid that if she did give birth to me, that they were going to immediately take me and put me in the system. <coughs> Excuse me. So she decided immediately to put me up for adoption. Um, so she puts me up for adoption and she told me, she said, uh, she said, I got to be with you for, for 30 minutes before they came and, and, and took you away from me. And she said, and, and obviously I didn't see you again until 44 years later. And she thought that I immediately went into uh, uh, an adoptive home. And then, of course, I had to tell her, you know, I'd spent time with the nuns for five months before I went to my parents. But fast forward two years later, uh, um, her and my father get back together. They get married. Uh, they have my brother and my sister, and they've been together ever since. Did they know about you before the contact through ancestry. In other words, had they found you through social media or anything else and, you know, watching you or did they only discover your existence because of the ancestry.com? They had no idea. They had tried, my parents had tried to find me and they ran into the same, um, stone walls that I did. And that was, you know, nothing would be released. Um, you know, everything was sealed. So my brother and sister didn't know about me at all. Um, my parents said that they had, that they had, um, you know, prayed over it time and time again, but they didn't know what to tell them because uh, they knew they would have, you know, a thousand questions and um, they uh, they just they didn't have any answers. So they just kind of kept it a, a family secret um, and just hoping one day that, you know, we would we'd be able to reconnect. How much how so from that day that you met your biological parents till you met your brother and sister, how much time elapsed there? So I met my parents on Tuesday. Uh, my brother was out of town. He works for the railroad. I can't remember if it was for work or something, something with his church, but he was out of town. Um, and they wanted to wait until my uh, brother and sister at the same time. And they wanted me to be there. And I told them that I, you know, personally, I didn't, that was, that was something that they needed to hear from you guys. And then, cause they're going to have questions that they probably wouldn't ask with me there. I don't want to make shit any more uncomfortable, you know, than it already is work through that with them. And then, you know, we can, we can kind of, you know, we can kind of go from there. Cause of course my parents and I had already agreed we were, we were going to have a relationship regardless of what anybody else thought. Right. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, I can see what you mean. That would have caused having you in the room would have been too many complications. So, and now did your brother and sister both live 
same county? I mean, still within an hour of you this whole time? Absolutely. Whole time. Wow. You know, and that, that area down there, I, I mean, quite honestly, Davis and Rowan counties aren't huge counties. You know, you're in North Carolina. It's it's amazing that you guys didn't cross each other somewhere in all those years and just look at each other like, holy cow, we look alike. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I'm sorry. I'm laughing because we're on video and <laughs> Kevin's dog is Moxie's he's getting, getting jealous. He's he's kissing daddy. He wants some loving, some Mox, attention. Moxie wants an interview. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, this um, I'm sorry, Steve. I, Kevin has told me this story before, and and um, I mean it's it's tear it's a tearjerker, um, and to hear it again, and, and maybe because you know Kevin knows my daughters were both adopted, and we kind of went through this with the oldest one. The youngest one has no desire to meet her birth mom, but our oldest one did. You know, and they're both from Colombia and South America, but we did the same thing, Kevin. We never held back that they were adopted. They, they knew it from the time they were babies. And we went through the thing about you're special because, you know, God introduced us to you. And, and you, you know, you kind of have a selection process. And there's the first kids we looked at. And that's, you know, that's the ones we took. Um, but we finally did. Monica, we took her down during the first season of filming a Narcos. She went to Columbia with us and um, actually got to meet her birth mother, three sisters, and a niece and a nephew. Well, Steve, I got to tell you, though, being a trained criminal investigator, I think your daughters would have figured out kind of at an early age that they didn't look like you. Oh, yeah. We went, we went to it. Uh, how come my skin's so dark? Am I a black person? And you're a, how'd that happen? You just tan better than daddy and mommy. Daddy can't go out in the sun. Yeah. yeah it's funny. Hey, Kevin, but, but back to that. So, because um, we're going to go back and start again with, you know, how'd you get involved in this thing? But in all your years... Like you said, you weren't prepared for this. So how did you, what's your process of processing it, right? How did you go about dealing with it? How did you go about, you know, talking to them? You probably got to have a thousand questions and stuff, but what were the most important questions to you? I think you got one of them answered, which is why, you know, you understood how it happened, right? Um, what were some of the other important things for you that you needed to get answered? Well, you know, we kind of segued into, um, you know, because I was in my mid forties with, you know, some, some medical questions that I, you know, wanted to know if there was something, you know, obviously that I would need to, to look at. And I found out there was a couple of tests I probably needed to have done that I should have done at 40, not at 44. So I took care of those and everything was good. Um, and then, you know, we just kind of, it turned into back and forth questions of, you know, tell me about your life. Tell me about growing up. Tell me about the parents that, you know, that adopted you you know, what kind of childhood did you have? And I forgot this part of it. Um, as soon, as soon as we met and they started hugging me and crying, both of them immediately began apologizing. Uh, we're sorry. We're sorry. Please forgive us. We're so sorry. And I said, listen, let's, let's stop now. I said, I understand what you did. I'm glad you did it. Um, I had a great childhood growing up. I wouldn't change it for the world. Even meeting you guys today, I wouldn't change anything that's happened up to this point in my life because if I change that, what else, what else changes? Um, but I said, there's, you, you don't have any, you don't have anything to feel any, any guilt or regret about. And I think that kind of, I think I could tell by the look on their face that it, you know, that I, I think that kind of, I think that kind of helped, you know, relieve them of, of, of the guilt that they'd had for, you know, 44 years. But that's got to be tough living with it for that many years. And the other tough part's got to be is them living with the secret with a son and daughter and not telling them. Uh, so 
because uh, I got to imagine the son and daughter at some point they're going to have questions, but maybe do they feel? I mean, as you find out later, are what are their feelings? Do they feel hurt that the secret was kept from them? How do they handle it? Uh, and my brother will probably listen to this and be mad, but I think he, I think he, my sister thought it was great. Um, and my brother and I get along, you know, we get along wonderfully, but, um, I think initially and just, you know, being a man, I think, you know, he, he was, he was always, you know, in his mind, the firstborn, the oldest. And then, you know, here I come along. Um, and I think, I think it kind of bothered him at first. Um, I know for some reason his, uh, his wife had a, had an issue with, with not being included in them, you know, telling my brother and sister that we were, you know, that they had a, an older brother. Uh, I still, to this day, I'm not real sure why the hell that, you know, hap- why she got upset about that. But, you know, it's people make their own decisions and I, you know, not for me to wonder or worry about. So, man, it's kind of hard to, because you go, okay, where do we go with this? But I mean, that's got to, Let's kind of put a pin in that because we'll get into that later as we get through your career and get up to this point. Um, but how long did it take you from, like you say, the minute you met him till like all the notifications, everybody who's going to know knows? I mean, how long of a process does this play out? Uh, so they tell my brother and sister on that Friday, um, that Friday afternoon, my sister immediately uh, contacted me and we talked. Um, Cause I was just kind of really, I was actually sitting on my front porch, uh, drinking bourbon, smoking a cigar around the time that I knew that they were going to tell them just to, you know, kind of calm my nerves. Cause I had no idea, you know, what, what their, you know, what their feelings were going to be. Um, and then my mother had reached out, um, over the next few days and told some of our, you know, close family. Uh, I, I didn't have any brothers and sisters growing up. I was, you know, I was the only child. Um, so she had told some of the close family members and, it was probably about a week later that um, that I decided, you know, to because I wanted to share it. You know, I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm proud that I, I found them and they are good people because I'd already made up my mind if they were, you know, if they were not decent people, I could walk away and not have any regrets at all because, like I said, I had a wonderful childhood. Um, so I put it on Facebook and then it kind of uh, kind of spiraled out of control. And Murph, I don't know if you remember, um, oh, or last uh, Karen Myers, it was with Fox Eight News in Greensboro. Karen was a, no, I don't. she was a newscaster for years and she was a friend of mine and she picked it up and, uh, uh, they immediately wanted to do a, a news story on it. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I talked to my parents about it and, um, you know, we discussed it at length and, and my mother, um, kind of what they wanted to do. And, and we all kind of agreed, you know, it's, it's maybe if somebody else is, is, um, wanting to do the same thing, you know, maybe this, this gives them a little extra push they need or the encouragement. So we decided to do that. And of course they, uh, they aired it on the news several times. And then I just got flooded with calls and emails and Facebook messages. And, you know, it was, I mean, it's, it's, I'm truly blessed. I, you know, if I die today, uh, you know, I've lived a, lived a good, wholesome, or well, not wholesome, but a good full life. We're going to talk about that uh, Freudian slip right there. Wholesome. Well, maybe not wholesome, but okay. Thank you for providing the uh, context we need to kind of, so let's, let's save that. Cause that's such a great story. I mean, um, we're going to incorporate it as we go along. So now let's rewind a little bit back to again, Cosa Nostra thing of ours. So, um, dad, Korean war vet, um, which you remember which branch? Dad was in the uh, 82nd Airborne. 
Oh, awesome. My dad was Army, was a World War II and a Vietnam vet. He got out before Korea, came back in afterwards, but um, uh, salute him. Um, but so kind of go back to your motivations for, so your dad gave you that piece of advice. You're graduating high school, no more messing with women's bras. I mean, I can see where that's going to lead you down a path of, uh, um, of sinful, uh, actions later. I don't know that that ever stopped. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) So what, what, what decision did you make? Did you talked about going into the military? What did you do? Did you go to college or go to the military? Well, so ended up over my life. I did both. Um, so my father was actually in, it was High Point College at the time. It's High Point University. I think dad started in 48, 49, maybe. And uh, at some point during his college career, he uh, didn't enroll for the next upcoming academic year because he was going to stay home and help my, my grandmother on the on the farm that she had. And that's when he he was drafted. So my parents, as long as I can remember, you know, it was, you're going to college, you're going to college, you're going to college. And, um, I pretty well, I mean, I, I I always tell everybody those four years of high school was a blast. I would do it again tomorrow, but it had jack shit to do with education. I mean, it was, (laughs) it was football, sports, chasing women and, you know, drinking beer and just living, you know, just having the best time ever. Um, which is pretty dumb on my part, but, um, so come uh, come my senior year in high school, um, there was a couple colleges, um, little small colleges that that had a little bit of interest in me, and probably would have had more of an interest if my grades would have been better to play football. And uh, then I decided for what what position did you play in? Football? I played defensive end, defensive tackle, and tight end. But I couldn't catch a cold as a tight end. I mean, you could hit me in the hands, and it would it's not going anywhere. I could block if that's what you need me to do, but you know, if you handed it to me, I was fine. But if you threw it at me, I mean, yeah, it, it was a disaster. Oh, so a career, <laughs> uh, career in explosives and ordnance demolition wasn't in your future either. Well, actually, I am an explosive breacher now, so I mean, <laughs> well, we'll have to talk about. Okay, and I've well. got all ten. I've got all ten fingers still. So still got all ten. Okay, today, today you have today. Them. Today I have right. <laughs> What's the old saying? If you see me running, you better be you, following you me. Better catch, <laughs> you better catch up and get going. So what'd you do? So, uh, I decided that, um, I hope I don't get in trouble for it. I decided that it was a good idea to get my high school girlfriend pregnant, um, in the fall of my senior year. And I graduated in. Oh, no, hold on, pal. I don't think there was a lot of thinking behind that. That's, <laughs> that's, that's more like a oops. Well, yeah. In, in the words of, in the words of my father, he said, uh, he set me down one day and I don't even know what sparked the conversation, but he looked at me cause he was always, he was always, you know, pretty stoic. Um, hold on one second. I'll stop that. He, um, she had to go in and aggravate her brother. My dad, uh, my dad told me, he said, he said, son, he said, you've got, you've got a problem. He said, you have several, but the main one that I see is your, is your dad is you're just damn girl crazy. And I'm like, well, dad, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a teenage boy. What am I? He's like, uh, it, it goes way past that. He's like, it's just, he said, you got, you got a damn problem. So when he found out she was pregnant, um, he, uh, he, that dad didn't have a lot to say. He was, I mean, you could, you could tell he was. He was, uh, he was very upset. Um, and my grandmother and Steve will, Steve will get this being from the South. My grandmother lived next door. We had about, I don't know, four acres right in there together. And so I was constantly back and forth with her as a kid. And uh, she lived to be 95 years old. 
uh, never was sick, just woke up one day, didn't feel good, and then died two days later. But when I told my grandmother in 1992, she'd been 92 years old, she was born in 1900, I told my grandmother that I'd gotten uh, a girl, my girlfriend pregnant. And my grandmother leaned back and she said, well, I don't know what she expected. She runs around with those little short shorts on all the time. What did she think was going to happen? <laughs> That's because her grandson That's exactly can do no right. wrong. It's the girl's fault. That's <laughs> uh, uh, taking up your family. Yeah, That's what yeah. So, so uh, my best friend from high school, his dad was our football coach. I end up, uh, we end up going. Uh, we joined the Marine Corps together, um, and I had a, a recruiter at the time. I was allergic to bees. Um, you know, and I, I would have an anaphylactic reaction. You know, if I was stung. So he told me immediately off the bat, he's like, "Do not." disclose any of this ever to anybody until after you get in he said because initially they're not going to at that time i think now that's since changed uh you know I've, i was in the military total probably uh, just shy of 20 years i had 15 years in but so travis and i go to um we, we, we join the marine corps together well uh my son's mother's parents and my parents at the time are like just go to college go to college we'll take care of everything here get an education, you know, go ahead and get you, you know, get, get your life started. And then, you know, uh, then, you know, get a job and, and support your family. But in the meantime, we're, we're going to help you both, both family units are willing to help. And I wanted absolutely no part of that whatsoever. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to rip roar and raise hell. And, you know, I love my son, love him to death. Wouldn't, wouldn't change it for the world, but I was just not ready for any of that shit. So we, uh, we, uh, and oh, segue. So my friend and I ran a landscaping business that summer before we left for boot camp. And, um, a lady had a huge brush pile she wanted moved. And, um, we wanted to go fishing that afternoon. So we got tired of trying to haul everything off. So we decided we'd pour a bunch of gasoline on it, strike a match and let it burn. And then we could go fishing. Well, it was humid like it is in the <laughs> South. And, uh, oh, no. so that, you know, now know a little bit more about explosives, the, the, the fumes, kind of lay low due to the humidity and we had part of the brush pile was smoldering because some of the wood was wet but it wouldn't it wouldn't catch and travis grabs a five gallon gas can climbs up in the brush pile and is pouring gas everywhere at the moment it caught uh and i seen him he took oh. off across the yard like a raped ape i ain't never seen anybody run that fast <laughs> and when he comes back he's got you could see skin on his chest because he didn't have a shirt on. And when he got closer, because I'm laughing my ass off because I thought it scared him. Because when the explosion went off, it rattled the windows in the house, uh, the, the older older lady's house. And when he got closer, I noticed he didn't have any eyebrows or a mustache. That it had singed it off. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so oh, anyway, he ends up in the he ends up in the burn unit, Baptist Hospital, for about nine days, and and um, it's kind of the same thing. The recruiters like you know. You guys can't mention any of this shit to anybody. Once you get in, you're fine. Keep it to yourself, blah, blah, blah. So, see, recruiters, them damn recruiters, they all they care about is making their numbers. Oh, you know, they, absolutely. They'll, they're, absolutely. They're like used car salesmen, man. They'll tell you whatever Amen. they got to Amen. to close so, the deal. So, we get to Paris Island, South Carolina. We get picked up, um, and they give us, uh, been 1992, 1992. And, um, so you're just coming in after the, the Gulf War. Just after the Gulf War, yes. And um, so we get there, and they're reading us the right. They're reading us the right act. If there's something you haven't told, you better tell it now. No, look, look hindsight's twenty twenty. Forty eight years old. That's all bullshit. They're just trying to get you to tell something. But at eighteen, yeah. 
I, you know, you're scared I was shitless. Scared shitless. And, and I remember what the recruiter said. He said, once you get in, you're fine. So Travis said, Travis tells me, he's like, I'm going to tell him about being burned. And, I, and he said, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. And I'm like, I, well, I'll tell him about the bee stings because, you know, our recruiter said once we, you know, once we get here, we're fine. So, you know, we're up front and honest. We, we tell everything, you know, we're going through. And it's probably, I don't know, about a month in the boot camp. And um, after PT formation that morning, they, uh, they called me up and uh, told me I had to go to uh, base medical. So I go down to basement and they didn't tell me why. So I got down to base medical and there was, they had me sitting out in front of a room and they bring me in and there's a bunch of Navy, um, uh, medical personnel in there. And now I know it's complete 110% bullshit, but there was a stack of files in front of one officer and he put his hand on it and he said, when did you find out you were allergic to bees? And we know everything cause it's in this file right here, which now I know it was, you know, just horseshit because there's no way he could have got it. So I was honest with him and he said, well, why didn't, you know, why didn't you disclose it up front? And I said, well, you know, the recruiter told me, I, you know, told him everything the recruiter said. So they send me back to my platoon and, uh, about a day or so later, they tell me that I'm being, uh, that I'm being discharged. So I request mass with the, the company CO go down and talk to him. And he's, I mean, really cool guy. I'll never forget. It was captain Clancy was his name. And he said, uh, he said, it's 1992. He said, uh, Bill Clinton's the president. They're doing a reduction in force. And any reason they can find to put somebody out, they're going to get rid of you. And I said, well, I don't want to leave this. You know, this is what I want to do. And he said, the best, <coughs> excuse me, he said, the best advice I can give you is to go home. If you've got a friend that's a doctor, get him, get him to write some letters for you. And, and you can more likely not get back in. So that's what I ended up doing. Um, I come back home. Um, as I refer to what I started going to college the first time, um, Went and saw a doctor, had him run some tests. Obviously, it was still, you know, there was, there was, um, you know, still allergic, very highly allergic to bees. Um, talked to the Marine Corps. Uh, they considered me prior service, even though, you know, I hadn't, hadn't, uh, you know, finished boot camp. Uh, then pops in the Army recruiter and um, actually Army National Guard recruiter. And he's like, we'll take you. And I said, well, what, you know, what, what do we need to do? And he said, so he looks over the letter that the doctor wrote and I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations are over, but he said, meet me back here at seven o'clock tonight. And he said, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of this. Your first op. <laughs> My first op. So about seven o'clock that night, I go, I go to the recruiting office. And, uh, now, did you have a balaclava on? Were you in camo face paint or what? No, but there wasn't any lights on in the place except his office, and he had a six pack of beer on the on the on the desk. And this was before um, you know you could scan something in a computer and you know work on documents and stuff. And uh, I gave him that letter, and the last paragraph said something along the lines of, um, "It is my medical opinion that if he's restung, he will he will uh, you know run run a high risk of an anaphylactic reaction." He said, this paragraph is not good at all. He said, this is going to, you know, this is going to preclude you from going in. He said, uh, I'll be back in a minute. So I heard him in the back room and he's back there for God. I don't, all you heard was the, the printer going, <laughs> just kicking papers out. And then you'd hear him screw with something. Then you'd hear it again. And then you'd hear him on a typewriter. And he came back and it's <laughs> the paragraph said, in my medical opinion, I think he is, you know, fit for military service. Fit for duty. So... <laughs> He said, I'm going to tell you something right now. And he said, when you go to, he said, when you go to MEPS, he said, 
I don't care what they ask you. I don't care what they promise you. It's all bullshit. Do not tell them anything. I'm like, I, I didn't learn my lesson the first time. So I go to the Charlotte MEPS Center and, um, I'll never forget it. There was this old crusty doctor that I had the last doc I went in front of and he takes my letter and he holds it up to the light and he's looking at it and he turns it sideways and I'm like, Oh shit. And he's, and then he looks at me and he said, do you want, do you want back in that bad? I said, what do you mean? And he said, either this doctor's a moron or somebody or somebody doctored this paperwork. He said, cause I'm reading, you know, the, the levels at which, you know, your body reacts to insect stings. And he's like this, either this guy don't know what the hell he's doing or you got somebody else to write a letter. I'm like, this came straight from my doctor, sir. I said, that's, that's the gospel. And, uh, he said, well, it's your life. And he stamped it and out the door I went and I never looked back. <laughs> so I'm going to throw another acronym at you. Cause you said it, see if you remember this one, MEPS. Military Entrance Processing Station. There you go. Yeah. Well, yep. when I went through one. 1979, I joined the reserves to get into ROTC, but I went through um, Fort Lost in the Woods Misery mm-hmm. in June and July of 1979. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about humidity? You want to talk about it's the <laughs> worst eight weeks of my life. Anyway. But it was fun, like you say, something you'll always do. But yeah, that was the fun part, going through the uh, uh, AFIS, uh, going through the initial processing, and then finally getting to Fort Lost in the Woods and getting all your stuff. But anyway, I digress. Back to you now. So you join, you're in the uh, Guard. So what do you do? Where do you go? Uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And what was your MOS, Military Occupation Specialty? My original MOS was uh, Artillery Cannon Crew Member, uh, Cannon Cocker. And Fort Sill is a good place to do that. Yep, at. yep, good place to do it. And then I reclassed a few years later to uh, Fort Observer with uh, with field artillery. So, my dad was an FO in Vietnam. Oh wow! For out of Fort, actually out of Fort Carson, uh, Colorado, Devard, oh. uh, Division Artillery. But that's what he did. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, not, they sat on steel pots as they were up in the Hueys, you know, looking at stuff. So, not fun back in the day. So, mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, but so. Um, Let's talk about you. You go through basic. What's your, uh, what, where do you go after that? So I come back home. Uh, I tried to, um, I, tr- I excuse me, before I left AIT, uh, we had a really cool, uh, well, actually, AIT? Camp, uh, advanced into advanced individual training. Uh, just your, your, your military occupational school. Um, we had a drill sergeant, uh, uh, Staff Sergeant Yarborough, and he was a ranger, and he had been to um, he'd been to Desert Rangers Storm. lead the way, absolutely. And he was more—I mean, he was a hard ass, but he was—he was a mentor to us. Um, and I talked to him at length at the point, you know, that we, you know, after graduation, where you know they they uh, they weren't giving you a hard time, and he. Um, I told him, you know, I'm like, I, I really want to go. I really want to go active duty. What What do I need to do? And you know, he gave me some advice. And and when I got home, I pushed really hard. But at that time, with the the reduction in force they were doing, um, you know, the guard had to have, you know, they had to have a manning a certain a certain amount of strength in the guard. Um, active duty had to have a certain amount of you know manpower, and it was just really hard at that time. Um, to transition or, or they made, they made the process hard. Uh, you had to get agreement from, uh, 
your company commander and then it had to go on up the line, you know, for them to approve to release you because then now that shows their numbers on the books is, you know, down. So it was just kind of really a pain in the ass, uh, when I got back home and, and I was going to college. Um, I went to Harvard on the highway, uh, Davis County community college at that time. Cause I knew, <laughs> I knew, you know, I'd always had interest in wanting to be a cop. So I was starting to take courses in criminal justice. But why, why'd you always have an interest? You know, I don't, I don't really know. Uh, I think it had to do, I really think it had to do with, uh, you know, with my dad. Um, you know, I grew up, my dad was, you know, my dad had guns. Uh, I grew up with, um, you know, just being infatuated with hunting and shooting and, you know, kind of. Did he ever do any observances of Memorial Day, Veterans Day, get up in uniform or do anything military related when you were growing up? Uh, no, I got smacked in the back of the head one time for not standing up for the national anthem uh, at a football game there by you my go. father. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it was always and and I remember too. There was there was an instance, uh, and I ended up working a case on the guy years later um, when I was in high school. Um, a dude that was you know several years older than us. Um, he ended up being being part of the uh, being involved with Outlaws Motorcycle Club, but he thought that I looked at him at a stoplight and. Uh, we had to win it down as men, you know, a buddy of mine I played ball with. And uh, he runs at, at the stoplight. He jumps out of his car, runs over and punched me in the face. And I reached up and I grabbed him by the wrist. And I was trying to get Bobby to drive so we could drag him down the road. But there was a car in front of us. So he pulls loose. And now we're able to, you know, to pull away so I don't get punched anymore. And I remember um, we went because we were just a block over from school, pulled back in the parking lot of school, told the principal what happened. We called the sheriff's department. I'll never, ever forget it. And he's dead now, but he ended up being a, being a decent guy. Um, uh, he was, he was a, uh, he was a detective and he happened to be close by when the call came out and he shows up and I told him who the guy or who the, who the guy was and he knew him. And, uh, I'll never forget it. Cause it, it left, it left a lasting impression on me. He said, do you really want to go through with um, applying for a warrant on him? Cause it was a misdemeanor warrant. So I could have went to the master's office. He said, do you really want to go through that process and have to deal with him and his friends? Cause that's, that's what it's going to be. And in my mind at that point, everything that I thought about law enforcement was kind of poured down the drain. Cause I thought, you know, you're, you're a cop. You should want on my behalf as a citizen to go whip his ass and take him to jail. And when, when he said that, and I realized that the, the flippant response that I got from him, I'm like, that's, that's nobody that's we're, we're here to protect people and, or at least try our best to make them feel like we're doing everything that we can. And it, it really, really stuck with me. It really pissed me off. And, um, so I kind of, in the back of my mind, um, kind of always thought that was something that I, that I wanted to do. Cause it just, like I said, it just wasn't right. It wasn't, it wasn't the right response. And how probably. old were you at the time? Oh God, I probably would have been fifteen, sixteen years old. And wow. and that guy was probably twenty, twenty one. So funny you should mention that because when I was a high school senior, Chapman, Kansas, the Chapman Fighting Irish and our rivals were the Abilene, Kansas Cowboys, home of Dwight Eisenhower. And I remember being in a quick stop or a stop and rob parking lot, you know, wearing the letter jacket and stuff, and everybody's talking smack, but this kid out of nowhere, just sucker punches me, hits me in the side of the face, cuts my inside of my cheek. I'm kind of bleeding. Well, one of the Abilene cops happened to be right there. 
rest him on the spot. And he kind of said, hey, you know, we can do this. It was one of those things. I didn't know any better. It wasn't a gang-related thing. He's like, yeah, I don't care. But it's so funny because the guy arrested him, Larry Cole, ended up going to the highway patrol. So years later, I go, I'm on the highway. After Salina PD, I'm on the highway patrol. Larry Cole is the safety sergeant. He's in my division. And we got to talking about that one night. I said, I got to thank you, man, for saving my ass. He goes, it wasn't so much saving your ass because Chapman had just beat Abilene, I guess, in a game. He says, I just didn't really like that kid. <laughs> 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 that kind of put it in perspective. I wasn't doing this for you. I was doing this for me. Yeah. But it was so funny, though. I mean, you, you, it's funny how those, uh, you know, you run into people years later, but so you get that, but you're 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 going through, like I said, what what point where are you at in your military? Do you go active duty or what do you do? No, I, I tried. I put in a request shit, and that, that's actually how I ended up going to Fort Observer School at uh, at Fort Bragg. Um, I'd put in a couple request shits uh, to, to go active duty, and they would set on them. Our command at the time would set on them. I wasn't getting you know really any forward forward momentum with it whatsoever. Um, I was working security in the evenings. Um, going to college during the day and uh i knew like is this your first or second attempt at college well there were several attempts um <laughs> first <laughs> third at fourth i mean hell it was yeah yeah I, I liked it enough i kept going back just you know until i finally finished but um you wore them down i wore them down i beat i beat them down you know and at that particular time you know the the, the war the war obviously hadn't started um we were still having fun, you know, because um, I would volunteer for advanced party every time we'd go to the field to go to, you know, go to Fort Bragg and hang out and, you know, and play army. And, uh, you know, at that time, too, it was it was kind of like television. It was really lax. Me and some buddies would go down advanced party. You know, we'd take a we'd take a grill and a um, steaks and a cooler full of beer. And, you know, we just have a big time. I mean, it was, you know, it was it was, it was a lot of fun. But um, I was working security and a guy I played football with. He um he called me one day and he said, "Hey, look," he said, "you know the sheriff's department's hiring," and he said, and I was at that time I was uh, I was twenty years old, I wasn't even twenty one yet. He said the sheriff's department's hiring. He said uh, they're they're hiring dudes right now, and he said you you need to apply if this is what you want to do. And I'm like, well, I've got a chit in, you know, go active duty. Uh, that's kind of really what I want to do, but you know, I kind of want to do this too. Um, I, and then I thought about it for a day or two, and I thought, you know what, I, I'll apply because you know. Worst case scenario, they'll, they'll tell me no. And I sat down and put a resume together, uh, which there really wasn't much to put on it. And uh, I turned it in and started the process. Well, in the meantime, um, and Steve will remember this, Jim Johnson would have been the sheriff. And he had lost, he was still the, the sitting sheriff, but he had lost the, um, the, the primary, or yeah, the primary. And he, or excuse me, the general election. So Gerald Heggie was the incoming sheriff, but he hasn't, he hadn't been sworn in yet. So I had to, I had to interview with him and he was a Vietnam vet and a, a, a complete moron. But part of my interview process, my very first law enforcement job was interviewing with him. He looked at my resume and he said, do you think you can whip my ass? And I'm like, this is, you know, what I thought was supposed to be a professional interview. And now the guy's asking me if I can whip his ass. And I said, well, I'm pretty sure I probably can. And uh, he stood up and he said, do you really think you can? And I'm thinking probably better chance than not. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we can do it Australian style, go out back and figure it out. One or two of us is going to win. So 
he sat down and he, he sat back in the chair and he laughed and he said, uh, well, can you do 50 push-ups?" And I'm like, yeah, we can do this all day. And I had on a you know, suit and tie. And he looked at me for a minute and he said, were well, you going to do them or you're going to keep sitting in the chair? So I take my jacket off my tie, drop down to 50 push-ups. I stand back up and he looks at the guy beside of me. He said, if his background checks out, hire him. I want him to come to work. So I, I stood there kind of, he said, do you have any questions? That's my interview. <laughs> That's what I said. I'm like, is that my interview? I said, do I, you know, do, do I, do I need to do anything else? And, uh, he's like, no, we'll, we'll be in contact with you. So I left and I'm like, this is the dumbest shit I've ever seen. And, uh, about a week or two goes by and I knew they had called my references and, um, they called me and they said, we're, you know, we're going to offer you a job, be here December the 5th. And we're going, you know, everybody will be sworn in on that date. And, you know, you'll kind of get your marching orders from there. Now you, and you got to understand a little bit about this Sheriff <laughs> Gerald Hagee. He thought he was a modern-day Buford Pusser who was he the did. famous sheriff from Tennessee. I mean, so much so that he carried a stick, a wooden stick, like like Buford did up in Tennessee. His uh, his police car as the sheriff was a – I think it was a Chevy Capri, wasn't it? It was. Kevin? It was uh, – no, it was an Impala. It was an Impala when they came Impala. out with them again. And didn't he have that built by the Richard Childress racing team? Richard Childress racing, Dale, Dale Earnhardt's uh, team. Yeah, they uh, they built a motor in it for him. And they had he had it painted, painted complete black, and then he had this white spider web design on it. And over the door, you know how race car drivers put their name on there, you know, and they have to climb through the window? Sheriff put his name and sheriff up there. I mean, this guy was eat up yes, with it. Yes, he was. <laughs> He was eat up with it. He painted he painted the walls of the jail pink with blue teddy yeah. bears on it with a tear coming out of their eye. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was something that was – I think I might have told Morgan this story real quick. Yeah. And you probably don't know it, Kevin, but um, when I was with DEA there in Greensboro, I was out on the interstate one day heading – I was probably heading down to Salisbury, and I got this call. I uh, didn't recognize on the cell phone, and so I called him back, and it was a congressional staffer out of one of the North Carolina senators' offices in D.C., and he's, you know, he's, he's uh, Agent Murphy. And I said, yeah. And he said, you know, this is so-and-so. And he said, I got a question for you. Uh, the uh, sheriff in Davidson County has requested you come down and assist his agency, and you've refused to do so. You got any explanation for that? I said, the explanation I got is this is the improper way for you to call me. There's protocols in place. There's proper chains of command and channels. I have no idea who you are. You need to go through the proper chain, and we'll talk later. And I hung up on him. Well, it wasn't two days. I'm in the boss's office. Hey, did you hang up on a guy from Washington? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but after I explained myself. Anyway, what that led into is that was my introduction because I was ordered to go down and, and meet the guys at Davison County. And what I found was, you know, a group of fa fantastic investigators that, you know, got to be really close friends. The sheriff, you had to kind of keep him at arm's yeah, length. You had to. I mean, I remember when they were running the – he was a Republican, right? Mm -hmm, he was. And so when the Democrats were holding their fundraisers at the local country club, the sheriff would set up DUI checkpoints on both sides of the exit. He did. From the I worked club. one of them. At Bob Timberlake, <laughs> the, the artist, we, he had a fundraiser. And I worked, I worked at, at – um, when I was in field training, and one of the state legislators come through, and I asked to see his driver's license, and uh, he looked up at me, and he said – he said, I heard the son of a bitch was going to do it, but I didn't think he had the balls. And I said, yes, sir, he does. You have a nice day. 
Hey, Murph, is this the same guy who had a seized truck tractor semi trailer and wanted one. to run an operation? <laughs> hey, Kevin, I went down. There, I, I don't know if you were there or not, Kevin, but I went down there and I was meeting with uh, who was was it a captain or lieutenant charged of vice narcotics? Oh, it would it would have been, been Brad Glisten. Yeah, Brad. Yep. yep Brad. Yeah, so I'm standing there and the sheriff comes in I'm talking to the guys. He's like, Murph, how you doing? And I'm like, hey, Sheriff, how you doing? And he said, Listen, Murph, I got a plan. We're gonna. This is going to require your input here. I'm going to need you to do some things for us. And he said, we just got this tractor trailer out of seizure, and it's mine now. So what I'm going to do is, Brad, some of the guys, there's a, there's this truck stop just outside of El Paso on the interstate. We're going to set the truck down there with my guys, and we're going to put the word out. Hey, we're willing to transport anything, anywhere, anytime for the right <laughs> amount of money. And so when they get approached to move these loads of, of dope into the United States, I'm going to call you, and I need you to set everything up. And I'm looking at him like, when did you become the sheriff of the United States? You know, <laughs> you're the sheriff of Davidson County. And as we're having this conversation, Brad's standing behind him the whole time, just shaking his head no. He's like, don't listen to him. <laughs> and finally, the sheriff, I said, Sheriff, sounds like an idea. And he walked away, and Brad came over. And he's like, I'm sorry, Murph. That's all bullshit. We know we can't do that. <laughs> oh, those are this some guy, good he times. Was one of a kind, wasn't he? Absolutely. So now, as the old saying went, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. We have with you instead December 5th, a date which will live in infamy, because this is the day Kevin Black, also known as Kevin Jackson, the uh, Motown performer, decides to enter into law enforcement. So how does that go, man? I mean, uh, do you have to do push-ups on your first day again? What? <laughs> no, it was uh, it was kind of a, you know, there was it was a transition period. Uh, so it was really it was a giant clusterfuck. Um, there was, you had, you had, you had outgoing, uh, personnel, you had incoming personnel, you had, you know, everybody trying to, you know, run around to get resworn. Um, it was, uh, it was pretty, you know, pretty long day. Uh, you know, everybody trying to find out where they kind of fit. Um, and I, I was told to, uh, they were going to find me a, uh, BLET, a rookie school date. Uh, but in the meantime, they were going to just have me do, you know, kind of whatever needed to be done around the, the agency. So how big was the agency when you got on? You remember how many sworn, you know, how many total employees? It probably would have been, it would have been over a hundred, uh, you know, total at that time. And now it's probably, God, I, I guess it's 250 now, maybe. Um, so I guess I drew the short straw and they needed somebody to fill in with the, at the, uh, animal control shelter taking money, you know, doing things like that. So that was my first job. And, uh, Br Brad Glisson, Steve, Brad, um, Brad was part of what they considered the old regime. So they had busted Brad down, uh, from captain and put him down there. So Brad would come pick me up and show me the County. And that's how Brad and I, you know, you got to be friends. And I did that. I probably just maybe three or four weeks till they hired somebody to, you know, a civilian to do that job. And, they put me working in the, in the detention center, um, as a, as a detention officer. And that was a lot of fun. That's when I really kind of learned how to deal with people. I had, um, two people on my squad that were desert storm vets, um, just really, really good seasoned guys. Um, and they, they taught me how to deal with people. Um, you know, you'd work intake on a Friday or Saturday night and, you know, the highway patrol would be bringing drunks in domestics would come in. I mean, it was just, if you wanted to see everything you could possibly deal with out on the street, it's going to pass through the portals of that jail, usually within 24 to 48 hours. I, I, respect, I have the utmost respect for anybody that can can work on that side of house as a career. 
Uh, I mean, they're, 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 you know, they're, they've got it a lot worse than the rest of us do. That's not something I ever wanted to do. Mm-mm. But, you know, at the time, it, and I told somebody this, though, they, at the time it was, it was great because I didn't know anything else. Um, and, you know, I thought, you know, it was, it, it, it was, it was really the cat's ass. That was, you know, it was just a good time. Uh, I learned a lot. You had true trustees at that point. Cause I remember there was a couple guys that would, you know, they would go to, they would go to jail just to stay off the streets and you could, you could trust them. You could, um, you know, you could, um, wake them up in the middle of the night and they would go, you know, cook you something to eat cause you couldn't leave, but you didn't have to worry about them spitting in your food or, you know, doing something else to it. And it was, it, it was, it was just a different point in, in, in time, I guess. Yeah, it was. Man, was that so? Yeah, because it's. I remember uh, first starting off as a Ute, as a rookie cop. The Salina Police Department, Sling County Jail, same building, and they used to have trustees. You know, they they allow these guys to go out and clean the cars and uh, do stuff. And I I was going, you really let those folks out? He goes, to your point, some of these folks, it's like the only place that where they ever get a roof over their head and three hots in a cot is jail. Otherwise, they're out on the streets sofa surfing or, you know, or begging for handouts. So some of these guys are actually more comfortable inside jail. Oh, yeah. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, especially after 27, almost 28 years, not everybody in jail is a bad person. You know, pe- people make mistakes in life. I've made a blue million of them. And I was just lucky that, um, you know, I, I had a lot more opportunities than a lot of people did and and, uh, and learn from those mistakes and, and, but not everybody in jail is bad. Not every, you know, it, it took me a while to realize that, you know, after being when I was a rookie, but you know, now hindsight's 2020, there's, there's some decent people there. They're just made mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. They're, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, yeah. And most cops are one paycheck away from being a stupid idiot anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about that. So as you progress through that, when did you finally get the opportunity to to hit the road? What, what, you know, what changed? How long were you doing the ACO and the jail stuff before you actually got to go hit the road? So I was hired in December and I think we started uh, the academy in, oh, it was, I think it was, it was March or April of, uh, of 1995. And, uh, that's when uh that's when I almost got fired the first time would have been during the police academy. <laughs> okay, I, I gotta start go. a tally between going to college and getting fired. Okay. What led to this almost getting fired? <laughs> so the the that particular class was all personnel um from different agencies that that were already hired. They just had to go through the state certification course. Uh, we had several from High Point Police Department. There was uh, three or four of us from Davidson County. And then they had a couple people, I guess, as filler. Um, you know, there was one guy that had, he liked it so much he'd done it three times but couldn't quite master the state exam. Um, but so it was one Friday early on in the academy, and one of the instructors called in sick. Um, so the, the, uh, the school decided for whatever reason they were going to have – some civilian lady come over and talk about resume preparation and uh, applying for a job. Well, all of us, like I said, you know, with the exception of three or four were hired and Steve will remember my buddy, Todd Cates. We're still lifelong friends of this day. Todd had done his internship with ATF while he was in college. And uh, so we're mock interviewing each other. We're not paying attention, just goofing off. And uh, one of the questions Todd asked me during the interview was, have you ever had sex with a chicken? Because that's so on every making, exam. 
Chick, so I start making chicken noises. Well, we were a little bit louder than we probably should have been. And the, uh, the lady heard it and, and took offense to it, but she didn't say anything. So that Monday morning, we're, you know, we're back in, we're back in the academy and, and, uh, back in class. And I don't even remember what the topic was, but I saw the sheriff walk by the door. And then I saw the major, one of the majors right behind him. And I'm like, that's kind of odd. And a couple seconds later, the, the, the guy over the BLET program opens the door and the sheriff, um, excuse me, the major sticks his head inside the door and does points two fingers, one at me and one at Todd, because we sit side by side. And he says, you two come here. And I'm like, God, what is this about? So <laughs> we go into a side hey, office. Wait a minute. You had no clue because you were asking if you ever had sex with a chicken and doing that, that that was about that. Well, I didn't know. She, I didn't know she was that thin skinned that it would have offended her. But, you know, obviously it did. And so we go into the this office, and the sheriff sat behind one of the uh, the instructor's desk, and he shuts the door and he said, "You two assholes think this is a game?" And I'm um, I Todd or I one said, uh, "What you know? What are you what are you talking about, sir?" He said, uh, "Your the your conduct on Friday in in class," and we're like, "What? What spe- you know? What specifically do you mean?" Because I'm not going to, I'll never be a witness against me. So I need to know what you know before you know what I know or what part I'm going to tell you. And you've already learned from the military. <laughs> it's all bullshit. Don't, don't, admit, don't admit anything. You're going to waterboard me or something, but I'm not, you know. I'm not giving it up, pal. And then he says, the the comments you two thought were funny during the uh, the, the mock interviews you were doing on on Friday. And I said, well, Sheriff, it, I mean, we were, it, was, it was really a waste of time. Everybody in the class is already hired. You know, we were just kind of goofing off to ourselves. Um, obviously, someone else heard it that took offense to it. And, you know, he said, exa- he said, I want to know exactly what was said. And Todd, Todd, to his credit, looks at him and he says, well, I asked Kevin if he ever fucked a chicken. And the sheriff kind of <laughs> sat back. <laughs> he sat back and the sheriff looked at me and he said, and what did you have to say? And I said. and the major the major busts out laughing and the sheriff looks down and he's trying not to crack a smile and he looks back up and he said you two assholes go back to class and if i hear your name again before you graduate i'll fire both of you we're like roger that sir out the door we went Oh, I mean, how could you keep a straight face? <laughs> he, he pulled it off. He, he pulled it off pretty good. Um, and did they ever hear your name uh, again during the academy? Not mine, no sir. Mine, mine or Todd's, either one. We, uh, you know, we we kept it together and graduated. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> well, so was that a truthful answer, though? That was absolutely a truthful answer because that was that was the answer I gave when when the question was asked. <laughs> no, I meant to the real question. You ever had sex with a chicken? Uh, yeah, that was a truthful answer. That was absolutely not. I've, I've not ever done that or wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> or wouldn't even know how. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure there's a way, but. <laughs> Where do I start? Okay. Uh, wait, one, one of those scrambled eggs looks like your father. Uh, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> and you were the lucky one. I can't believe it. So. 
you get out of the academy. So kind of talk about your progression because eventually you end up working a lot of narcotics. So when does that bug hit you? You know, you start working the road first, right? I, yeah, they they put me. I, I never, um, I never ever had any desire whatsoever to work drugs um, at, at that particular time in life. My career goal was to. Um, I wanted to be a deputy U.S. marshal because I had a, a friend that worked for the VA that knew the deputy marshal in Winston at the time, and he'd introduced me to him, and that was kind of in the back of my mind. Uh, but I never wanted to work, never wanted to work drugs. Um, uh, never really wanted to work detective division. I really, you know, thought that the, uh, you know, the, and it is the meat and potatoes of every, uh, law enforcement, aid, uh, state or local law enforcement, agency, you know, it's patrol. And, uh, you know, I thought I'll do this and I'll do the best job I can do. I'll finish college and, you know, maybe one day before I retire, I'll be a captain, you know, over, you know, patrol division. So, at that particular time in life, they put me on uh, what was called S-Squad, which uh, we worked from 1400 to zero two was our rotation. And it was basically to cover the peak crime hours. Um, got through field training. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was a good time. Had good, had good FTOs. Um, but I, I noticed that um, because I was, uh, you know, really wanted to work, I, I always felt like if I'm going to be here for 12 hours, I've got ADD horribly. Um, I'm going to stay busy because, you know, I, I just don't want to sit around and be bored. So I was constantly getting into stuff. I mean, just constantly. And in doing so, you know, stopping cars, trying to serve warrants, you know, you're going to come across, you know, drugs. Uh, not a whole lot of guns at that time like it is today. I mean, there was some, but uh, I mean, it was just, I was just really, really, I guess I had a horseshoe up my butt because it just, it kind of, it kind of came easy. Um so I had, um, I'd kind of made a name for myself. And, um, in, in the meantime, I got on, uh, got on SWAT, uh, got in trouble again for not doing a felony vehicle stop on a carjacking suspect. Um, now you got to tell this story cause you got fired on this one. Didn't no, you? no, no. That was later on down the road. No, that was later down the road. Oh, yeah. well, okay. okay. <laughs> I called on the carpet for that. Right, well, well, okay. Let's, let's talk about that. So, uh, this is not a training exercise. This is the real deal, right? Felony car stop. Oh yeah, this is that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carjacking just occurred, and I've got one of the actually one of the. He was a reserve officer at the time. He's dead now. Ronnie Foster. Uh, Ronnie was in the passenger seat. He he liked to ride with me, and Ronnie, you know, Ronnie was a good guy. Uh, later got cancer and died. But we're heading inbound to Lexington, and uh, they give out this bolo. Uh, be on the lookout for a. Uh, I think it was a four Taurus at that time, occupied possibly by. You know, three uh, th- three black males just involved in a carjacking in the city of Lexington, and literally about the the last word that come out of the dispatcher's mouth, I look over in the northbound lane of uh, of travel, and I'm like, "Son of a bitch!" There's a gray Ford Taurus. So we bust the median, uh, hit the blue light zone. Car runs for a little bit. Finally, the guy pulls over, and I was so excited with the fact that this was possibly somebody that had just, you know, carjacked someone and I was you know going to be able to, excuse me, get the collar for it. Um, Ronnie and I both bail out of the car and run up, you know, with guns drawn. And uh, sure enough, I mean, there was three guys in there and they had a pistol laying in the floorboard and, and uh, we arrested them. And uh, the, uh, the next morning, the major calls me in and he said, you know, that was a, that was a great job you did. He said, but you, I, I don't see anything in your report about a felony vehicle stop. He said, do you, do you remember those since you, you know, you just graduated several months ago from rookie school. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember how to do them. And he said, well, why didn't you do them? He said, and I said, well, I, I forgot about it that night, but I do remember how to do them. 
So then he, you know, explained, uh, took the time to explain to me how that was, you know, a stupid decision. I, you know, could have been hurt or killed. And, you know, so I, it, it was a learn, it was a learning experience. It is. But I mean, that's, that's the, especially as a rookie, that's your inclination is to get up there and get hands on before they have oh, a chance absolutely, to run. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and that's one of the lessons I had to learn too. You know, it's just when you're a rookie, you want to burn a blue streak through everything. Oh, yeah. And it's like, you, you get, you, you know, back, back when I started, Merce started before me, um, Merce still was on horses. They would go to call boxes, you know, and do <laughs> stuff like that. So yeah, we look good. That's you look good in those, in those stirrups. But, um, uh, you know, I just remember it's like, um, you, you want to, you want to make a rest. You want to do stuff like that. And I actually had a mentor, you know, officer, somebody who really liked me. Actually, we both came from the same hometown. He sat me down one time. This is when I first learned the story. Have you ever heard the story about the young bull and the old yes, bull? Yes, on top of the hill. Yep. Yeah. It's for. Have you heard this one, Murph? I've heard a lot of bullshit, but I'm not sure I've heard <laughs> this story. So you got a young bull and an old bull sitting on top of the hill, and there's a herd of cows down there. And the young bull says, let's run down and screw one of them cows. And the old bull says, let's walk down and screw them all. <laughs> you know, and... So it was. That's when I first got. It's like if you just slow down a little, Skippy, and not overdrive your headlights, you're going to get into a whole lot more stuff. But when you go so fast, you're going to miss. To your point, danger yeah, signals. You absolutely. run up there. You've got pistols. Yeah. So, see, there's this. I just told you a story you didn't know, Murph. I mean, I thought as an old timer like you, you collected these stories, sitting in a cave, writing stuff on the walls, you know, for posterity. You know, I've probably forgotten more than you'll ever know, Morgan. How do you know? <laughs> <laughs> if you forgot it. <laughs> anyway, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. Um, so, Kevin, so that was the first of many uh, instances to where you were going to have uh, violations of department policy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was that was the first. That was the first of many. Um, so, I guess in the in in the meantime, um, I'd kind of made a kind of made a name for myself. Um, you know, as being a you know hardworking officer. Or, or a dumbass, or probably a combination of the two. Um, and at that time, they had a, a, a thing that was called the TAC team. And, uh, you know, it was basically the uniform arm of the narcotics division. And we would do anything, everything from drug interdiction to assist on, um, uh, you know, stuff that the drug guys, the, the plainclothes guys were doing. And I guess that was probably around the time that I, you know, would have met Steve. Um, and... So I started doing that. Uh, most, I think about everybody at that time was on SRT and that would have been the, 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 the SWAT team for the sheriff's office. That would have been along the time that, that, um, about 1996 that we had, a uh, an officer shot on duty. Um, and that, that's, that's kind of when it kind of really brought everything to somewhat delight that this was, you know, it's, it's, it's not all fun and games. It's a, you know, it's a serious, it's a serious business. So t talk about that shooting. Um, were you working that day or off? Yeah, we just actually, uh, we were in Thomasville. Uh, Bill Kefley was the officer that was shot. He, uh, they had went to some kind of domestic and the, I don't even remember the suspect's name. He had actually went next door and he had, he had stabbed an older lady, elderly lady. I don't, I don't know why. Um, then he went back to his parents' house and when the two officers get there, uh, he comes down the hallway with gun and of course they unasked the porch, uh, to get away from him and get behind cover. And he, he was able to actually shoot, um, shoot Bill Kepley in the, I can't remember if it was the femur or the hip, but it put Bill down to where he couldn't, you know, he couldn't roll over. Couldn't yeah, move. yeah. He couldn't, he couldn't move. Yeah. And we, we had just hit a house in Thomasville, uh, with our group. And, uh, when the call came out, you know, shots fired officer down 
And uh, of course, we, you know, was that your first? Was that your first officer down call? That would have been, yeah that that would have been that would have been my first one. So you know, we talked about the emotions like when you met your family for the first time, your your biological mom and dad. Now that you're kind of getting out of that rookie stage, you're doing that. How did this affect you the first time you got a call like that, where it's one of your own? I mean, how did that how did that change your perception, your mindset about not just that incident, but going forward? You know, the the initial the initial um, because we had an officer. We had an officer killed a couple of years after that. Um, the the initial the initial thing in my mind, I remember thinking because it was, I left my car with my SWAT gear in it at the house that we just raided because it was boxed in by some other officers, and I jumped in a car with um, a guy named and Steve remember Frankie Young. Uh, he was canine officer, um, and I think it was um, I think it was Scott Craven who's chief deputy now was in the passenger seat and I sat on the center, um, the center armrest in the car and had to grab onto the canine kennel to hold on. Cause of course, you know, we're going Mach four to get there. And so there's three of us in the car. My SWAT gears back at, you know, back at the house that we just raided. Cause I couldn't get it out from all the other cars that were in the way. And I don't know why that was a good idea not to take my own ride down there. But, um, all I could think about, uh, in, in route to the call was somebody did something to one of ours. And it's, it's payback time. You know, you can't, you can't get, we can't get down there quick enough, uh, you know, to, to, to take care of business. And there was, at that time, there was no real sense of, well, shit, he's done shot one officer. You know, if you shot one, you might as well try to shoot three or four more. And what I didn't know at the time it transpired is, um, as other officers got there, he actually shot into another officer's car. Um, so, we get there and they're, they're, they're starting to deploy, um, SWAT guys. We're starting to come down and kind of take over the, the perimeter or augment the perimeter till they can decide, you know, what's going on. And I Hey, real quick and tell everybody about at this point, you're, you're still in uniform, right? Assisting the tag team. So you're in still, uniform, still in uniform, still in uniform. So now are you wearing Kevlar then? I had on a regular duty vest, just a regular under vest. Um, and all I could think of was, well, I've got shiny shit on me. You know, I've got my badge. I've got my name tag. I've got my, you know, collar insignias. So I took all of that off and, um, I borrowed a shotgun from one of the patrol officers that was there and then went down and took up part of the, um, uh, part of the perimeter duties, uh, uh, at the scene. And Bill was evacuated. They're, they've got him en route to the hospital. We know he's moved. Uh, we've got snipers across the road. Um, we've got the back of the house covered. And, uh, and negotiations start. And the car that Steve was talking about comes in play. Uh, the guy had his mother and father hostage in the house. And he, uh, through negotiations, decided that he wanted to see what, what everybody around this area called was the spider car. And that was the car that the, you know, that the sheriff drove. So, um, the sheriff, they put out on the radio, they're like, the sheriff's going to pull down. He's going to pull down in front of the house, top of the driveway. So the guy can see the car, you know, they're trying to pacify him to see if, you know, he'll release his parents. And, and, uh, I can't remember if it was before or after, I think it was prior to him, uh, agreeing to come down. They let his, he let his mom and dad go. And Gerald pulls up in the drive, Gerald Heggie pulls up in the driveway. And what was funny is uh, a couple of officers that were, um, SWAT guys that were in the, at the back of the house with me, somebody said, I hope they shoot that son of a bitch when he pulls in the driveway. 
because he was such a pain in the ass to work for. And of course we all got a, you know, I've got a chuckle out of that. And we could, so we moved around to the corner of the house because they were, you know, they were going to try to get him out on the porch and either the sniper would be able to take a shot if he was still armed or, you know, we would be able to engage him at the corner of the corner of the residence. So the sheriff pulls up top of the driveway, throws the car door open and, the guy's like, well, I want to hear you rev up the engine. So he revs up the engine. You know, they play play that little game back and forth. And then uh, pretty quickly you could realize that it, the negotiations were not going to go anywhere. Um, and he tells the he tells the sheriff, he said, the sheriff says, you need you need to come on out and give up. And uh, bad guy says, well, I got enough food and water in here to last a week. And then the sheriff's reply was, well, that's good, but you don't have but about an hour to eat and drink it all, and we're coming in to get you. And he gets in the car and takes off up the driveway. And I remember turning to uh, to um, one of the guys beside him, and I said, what's this wee shit? You know damn good and well he's not coming back down here. He said, no, that's that's us. That's us he's you talking You got a about. curb in your pocket there, yeah. son? Yeah, what's this wee yeah. stuff? Well, the other thing, too, is you never want to telegraph. It's like, okay, we're going to come in in an hour. Okay. Yep, that's what he told him. That's what he told him. And, uh, well, the other thing too, the other rule in negotiations too, is you don't give up something unless you get something in return. Yeah. I'll rev up the engine, but why don't you at least let one of them yeah. go? Yep. You know, you want, you want something, you want the sheriff to show up. Good faith. You do something yep. first. Absolutely. But anyway, so continue on. How's the, how's this situation unfold and resolve? So the parents, the parents are let out of the house. Uh, and he comes on the back, the bad guy comes on the back porch, uh, and he knew we were. Why do they? Why does he let the parents go? I, you know, I don't know. I, I, to this day, I don't, I don't know why he let them go. I, honestly, I, I'm surprised he didn't kill them. Um, I think that's probably what he wanted to do. I just don't think he could bring himself to do it. And we transitioned from the corner, the front corner of the house, around to the back. And he comes out on the back porch, and he knew he knew where we were at, but he couldn't see us because it was dark, and we'd you know put the street light out, but we could see him from the you know from the porch light. And he cranks off, uh, he cranks off a couple rounds just randomly out across the backyard where of course everybody tries to get as low to the ground as they can get at that point. And I remember, um, God, it was Brad Gliss and myself and, uh, I think it was Jody Shove. I remember coming back up and taking a knee and bringing the shotgun up and leveling it out. And it was like, well, as you guys know, everything was in slow motion. He's raising the gun up, but he, instead of raising it up to point, he's raising the barrel up and sticks it to his temple and pulls the trigger and blows his brains out. What, what kind of weapon did he have? Do you remember? Had 1911, yeah. Ooh. Shot one through one temple right out the other. Because, you know, of course, then we're moving forward to, uh, to clear the rest of the residence. And uh, he's laying there, you know, sucking his last breath. He's dead, but I it, his body's dead, but I don't think his brain has, has registered everything yet. So he's still trying to gasp, you know, gasp for air. And then, you know, then he was, he was out. Dang. Kind of, I mean, you're, that's a whole lot of firsts for you. I mean, like you've got an armed standoff, you've got, you know, an officer down, you've got suspect. Never had that happen where the suspect commits suicide right in front of you. You know, we've had it happen inside the house away from, uh, or you find him a couple days later, you know, and they've killed themselves. So um, how, but the officer who was shot, how did he do? Ended up going, ended up doing well. Uh, matter of fact, I saw him, uh, I guess it was last month. He's, uh, he's getting, you know, close to the end. Um, you know, I think he still has issues, you know, mobility wise, you know, it's not, it'll, it'll never be a hundred percent. Um, but at that time, that's when I found out how screwed up everything was. Um, 
you know, I had the emotions of, you know, went to the hospital that night, like everybody did, got home, sat down. And that's when, that's when it kind of hit me, you know, this, this is, this is not a game. You know, my, my, my father tried to tell me that, you know, before I got on the, on the department, um, you know, this, this is real, you know, there's really bad people in the world and they do bad shit to each other. And, you know, you need to, you need, you need to be cognizant of that. And, uh, up, up to that point, I mean, you know, I might as well have had a cape on and an S on my chest. I mean, I, you know, I, I just didn't think anything could happen to any of us. And, uh, but I, but I remember the, the initial emotion of being upset because, you know, a, a friend w- was shot and injured and the reality of, you know, this, this, this is real. But then the secondary emotion was, I don't, I wouldn't want to do anything else. This is, um, this is where I, this is what, this is what I want to do. This is, this is what I want to do in my life. Hey players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out as always on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two. 